Welcome to the Biz Crush podcast series where I interview successful South African entrepreneurs and movers and shakers in order to extract practical advice on succeeding in business and life. I'm your host, Jacques Passant. And remember, if you prefer Afrikaans, check out Clipcoer's podcast series. Seeking to transform service delivery in the motor industry, Julie Caldecott became an automotive industry entrepreneur. She established Pinewood SA addressing the challenge of reselling, implementing and managing the Pinewood dealer management system software for South African motor dealerships. This product is intended to help dealerships deliver better client service in a very complex environment. Now, years later, the motor industry and the vehicle dealership franchise model are experiencing disruption and revolution. Customers are also becoming even more demanding, while the world is increasingly moving online, making big data all the more important. At it again, Julia has recently launched an auto tech company, Motify, exploiting new opportunities to improve automotive customer service delivery through people-driven big data. I talked to her about this and other developments around vehicle industry service delivery. Welcome, tell the listeners, where are you based? Where did everything start? Where did you grow up? You know, just a snapshot of your journey. So I'm currently based in Cape Town, but I'm a Gautengeling by birth. <laughs> I grew up and for the most part of my schooling was in Johannesburg. And I actually finished my high school at St. Anne's in Natal, after which I did a gap year in Germany on Rotary Exchange, and then came down to Cape Town. Why Germany? So many people asked me that question, and I studied English, Afrikaans, and French <laughs> at school, and I was like, let's add another language to the trick box. Uh, I'd never been to Germany. I didn't know much about the Germans. I was, I'm very adventurous, and I like to try different things, and so that was the opportunity. Everyone was going to Australia and America, and I was like, no, no, that's way too boring. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot, but as a young lady back in the day, what's the one lesson or that piece of wisdom that the Germans taught you? That mm, Consistency, hard work, and maybe in antithesis, life needs to be a little bit more fun than they make it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a contradiction outside of, of Germany. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> What happened next? So, yeah, then when I went to UCT, I actually did my CA. So I'm a qualified chartered accountant um, with three years articles at KPMG. And KPMG in my first year, I probably like six weeks in, had a proper panic attack. I am from a family of entrepreneurs. My dad is in the motor industry and my grandfather's in the motor industry. And they'd always loved work. So like I never knew anything different. And like probably six weeks in, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be one of those 80% that hate their job. <laughs> and, and I was like, no, this can't be my life. Um, so I think six weeks in, I was like, okay, this is just a means to an end. And let's focus on, on ticking the box and moving forward. But your father and grandfather being entrepreneurs, weren't they encouraging you to start your own business? Or is it that typical, the millionaire next door in America, where all these successful, small and medium-sized business owners encourage their kids to become professionals, which is, again, the contradiction? I think my dad always wished that he had been a CA. So I think there's a little bit of that. Oh. He was a professional rugby player <laughs> at Varsity. <laughs> and I think he then ended up leaving Varsity after two years and 
getting into the motor trade. Um, yeah, I think he just knew so many CAs and he was just like, it's a really good foundational business degree upon which you can then build a business, which is a massively different perspective in South Africa to what a CA is globally. So it is quite an interesting dichotomy of if you're a chartered accountant in the UK, you're very much wanting to be an audit financial manager. Mm. There are very few chartered accountant entrepreneurs. As it so turns out, it's fairly similar in, in South Africa. So entrepreneurial kind of the risk adversity um, kind of doesn't align. It's almost the two don't go together, but... I love my degree. So it wasn't like I didn't enjoy the business side of things. I think the auditing side of things was just mind-numbing. And I mean, we were working ridiculous hours. I mean, I was working 90-hour weeks and not like once or twice. Sure. And not exciting stuff. No, not exciting <laughs> stuff. But the lessons it, learned, it did teach me were, again, hard work. I always say that the beauty of employing a CA is that you know that they've actually put their head down. It's not necessarily how clever they are. And then also just getting a, a huge perspective on all different businesses. I was in the consumer industrial market, which was everything other than financial services in the KPMG Cape Town office. So I was from you know fishing to manufacturing to Cape Span, which is a fruit growers. So I had a real diversity of clients. So I think that was also the great kind of perspective you know I was talking to people that were passionate about what they were doing so that kind of sparked the business interests I then did what any good CA does and went to London <laughs> to make some money it was um, 2007 so I mean they were lapping us up at ridiculous rates per hour I went to the Royal Bank of Scotland and landed a fantastic job I got exposed to credit deals I got to travel I had a really fantastic nine months at that stage now I was like I need to find something that I love. And I was loving what I was doing in London. It was the end of 2007. The cracks were starting to show. We kind of decided to time it with the crash and decided to kind of get out mm. and travel while see how everything would kind of settle. Obviously, come 2008, the bottom really did fall out. And we traveled extensively over an 11-month period. And the big aha moment for me is that everything is about sales. And I think if one had asked me kind of four or five years, would you go into sales? I'd have said, not a chance. But I realized that actually your whole life revolves around sales, really, doesn't it? I mean, whether it's being, you know, selling a product to a person, whether it's selling an idea to your partner, whether it's selling why your kids need to do certain things or conform <laughs> to certain rules or whether it's selling your ideas to your staff. So I think once I got my head around that, all of a sudden I looked at the world and I was like, okay, well, there are all these amazing opportunities. It was just after the Olympics and my husband was very insistent that he did not want to go back to London. At the same time, an opportunity came across my desk to start Pinewood. And I vacillated around the idea quite a lot because at that stage, you know, I was 28 years old. You know, what do I know about starting a business? What do I know about management? What do I know about the motor industry, even though I'd grown up in the motor industry? And then I said, well, if I don't know much more than the people around the table that aren't prepared to take the opportunity and I have got nothing to lose. And at that stage, I really, it was really like, I have nothing to lose. I didn't have a house. I didn't have debt. I didn't have much of a, a reputation in the South African uh, motor industry. And yet in the same vein, like, you know, I had a team that was willing to invest. 
and they were willing to invest in me and help me along the way and they had their reputations so we could build on those and I think the key elements and and really when I decided to start the business the massive gap was customer service and I still to this day with that sales focused mind treat your customer rights your customer will pay you back a hundred times over And fundamentally, we wanted to transform service delivery in the motor industry. So I started Pinewood and Pinewood um, South Africa. What we do is we sell a dealer management system, which is an ERP into the motor industry. So into dealerships. Back in 2009, when I started the business, there were very few DMSs in the market. There were kind of two key players. What I didn't realize at the time is that the, the barrier to entry is massive. Hence only two. (laughs) Yeah. Dealerships don't change their DMSs very regularly. But luckily, I I was more naive at that stage and really just believed that, you know, the product that we had just was far superior to anything in the market. And we didn't develop the product. So we're resellers of the Pinewood DMS. Product aside, we wanted to build a business that focused on our customers and helped our customers focus on their customers and really improve the motor industry reputation. Reselling, I think it's old news when it comes to tech yeah, it was. software, but for most business people, they either start something, create their own product service and, and they sell it. Mm. So how did that opportunity come about? And number two, let's unpacking the reselling opportunities out there. So how the opportunity came about is my dad was in the motor industry and he was running a motor dealer group and they were looking for a product that was largely CRM based and to be able to kind of leverage their customer service in their business. So they went out to markets and looked globally at all different dealer management systems out there. Now, this was before my time and they decided on the the Pino dealer management system And at the time that they chose to implement, they said that they wanted to control who actually delivered the service locally. So they wanted to be able to control who they were going to effectively buy from at that stage. And then they also saw it as a business opportunity. So um, the UK business wanted a local reseller. They actually pitched it to a couple of people. And I was one of them that they were considering heading up the entity under their investment holding company. Pinewood's history, how did that come about? Um, Because to be honest, when it comes to customer service, I would not put the Brits (laughs) in front of the queue, unfortunately. So it's very interesting. Um, Totally. How it came about was they were a dealer management system and they've been around in the industry industry for, I think, close to 40 years now. And what happened in the late 90s was the Pendragon Group was looking to actually grow their internal systems and they wanted to create a new CRM-focused dealer management system. So at that stage, they decided to buy one of their suppliers and give them a boatload of, of money and some time to write a product from scratch. So literally like with motor industry, mentality customize customize customize. yeah so really focus with the concept they're writing it for their actual business but it also needs to be able to retail so that they can recoup some of the the cost investment so it's a dealer management system written by dealers for dealers 
So it has that philosophy in mind that what the dealership world wants is built into the product. And the customer in the in the motor business and the dealerships starts at the front end as a sales cycle and gets their multiple touch points through the entire process. So customer retention is critical to a dealership business um, and making sure that you're not only selling the cars, but you're actually retaining them in the in the after sales departments for service and parts. Coming back to you guys, or they went hunting for the right product. The South African market, very tiny, mm-hmm. I would imagine wasn't on the hit list for Pinewood, the UK at the time. Yeah, it wasn't um, at that stage, although, you know, we've spoken about it at length over the last 14 years as to the ease at which to move from the UK into South Africa. Whilst it's a small market, it is still relatively similar. You know, the motor industry is maybe slightly behind the, the UK in terms of what they're doing, maybe not even behind at this stage, but it was certainly in the five or six years ago. But the way that we operate is not too dissimilar, as well as, you know, language is obviously a a benefit and time zones to offer support. So it was an opportunity to kind of dabble and play in a relatively small market with passionate partners, really. And it's low risk from a currency standpoint, anyway. Yeah. And the upside was there were many. Yeah, and we were the first reseller for them. So, you know, had to bump our heads through the process and um, still sometimes today. And the product has been largely customized for the South African market. And a lot of that customization was done in the, in the early days. It was also the first delivery as a service product which in 2009... Way ahead of its time. Yeah. What I didn't realize at the time was not only was I starting a business, as I was also managing a a data center as well as a technical team locally. And telecom infrastructure was absolutely appalling at the time. So, Mm. you know, we couldn't actually even deliver the product across the infrastructure. We had to put devices in place that um, compressed the data between the two points. Good evening. So that was a whole nother learning curve for me as well. Did you anticipate that? Or was it like, okay, we've got the product. Oh, goodness, the roads are <laughs> non-existent almost. Yeah, we did. I mean, we did actually anticipate it. Um, I think to the extent that it needed to be planned, probably not as much. And I think also the reality around, we thought the network infrastructure would catch up a little bit faster than it did. It was only in 2017 that we actually started pulling out those network devices and moving over to fiber. The dealerships are also often in far-flung places, so fiber networks are not necessarily pulled in, and um, the complexity of actually deploying in those areas is a bit more complex. You mentioned the barrier to entry at the time being much higher than you anticipated. Obviously, the internet, speed of internet, Challenge number one, what else were the challenges? So the franchise or franchisee market, you know, dealerships are franchised and the OEMs have a lot of say in how the dealerships need to be operated and some more so than others. Certainly in the early days, our first um, approval process was with Miss in South Africa and make sure that the product that was being offered actually covered all the bases that they needed in terms of what they needed the dealership to run. That has progressed significantly, obviously, because of 
the need for collective data, so consolidation of data across all the different um, enterprises. So we've gone from just making sure that the product can do what it needs to do to run a dealership, as opposed to a an accounting system. I mean, people often ask me, a dealer management system, like, you know, how customized can it be? And I said, well, the reality is that to run an accounting system in a motor dealership is impossible because of the various nuances in the motor industry. And just thinking of spare parts, that's a nightmare just by itself. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the easiest part. I mean, oh, really? Because really? the vehicle sale has so many parts to it. So, you know, there's the vehicle, there's the accessories, there's the the back end. So all your your insurance products. And then there's the actual financing elements of all of those that have to take place, as well as the motor dealer back end that gets kickbacks from the OEMs. Of course, of course. So that also needs to be accounted for in, in a certain way. And then so you've got that sales outlet, which is a complex sell. And then you've got the after sales, so the service and parts with standardized labor rates, standardized parts distributions, service plans that are being guaranteed by the OEMs. Um, maintenance plans, you know, in some cases, and warranty claims that need to get paid by the, the OEMs. So it's a complex business. And I always chat to my customers and I say, you know, you guys are actually running three businesses in one, but it's fun for the most part. So that has been the barrier to entry. I mean, now our biggest challenge is, and what keeps us the most busy is OEM integration. And, you know, we spoke about the SWOT analysis, and that's one of the challenges because the OEMs are just wanting access to more and more data, and they're wanting to control more and more of the sales cycle. I mean, everyone in, in the motor industry is talking about the agency model, whereby the OEM actually contracts directly with the, the retail client, and the, the dealership is just a kind of conduit to that end client. So the motor industry is changing and has changed massively over the last three years and it's going to be changing even faster and that's the beauty of it you know we're in a market that is really revolutionizing its processes and its products you know rightly so it's, it's, it's interesting I always use the example of omo unilever's actual customer is we can pay or shop right checkers mm. but they want to talk to the end user and that's the challenge. And I think even with John Deere, John Deere sells to the dealerships, but they want to talk to the farmer. Yep. But the customer is the dealership. So in this instance, it's the same. So the OEMs wants to engage with me, mm. the customer, but the actual customer is the the dealership buying the vehicles. Mm. Would that be a fair, yeah, totally. simple summary? Totally. And that engagement directly with the end user, why that direct engagement? I mean, I think, you know, the same reasons why, you know, Nike have their standalone stores and Adidas have got their standalone stores and yet they still sell through the retail market. They want to control the image and the brand and the customer experience. And they want to be able to offer the consumer the best experience of their product through the process. And their product is often just considered to be the actual vehicle, but actually their product is the after-sale service as well. Their parts performance rates, you know, the ability to actually fix right first time and to be able to control that process, take the Tesla model. They've only got their own retailers globally. And it's quite difficult to scale in terms of various elements. It's interesting, you know, the agency model is they're not discontinuing the, the franchise. 
the motor industry franchise model is the oldest franchise model globally. Really? So it's not totally been disseminated, but a lot of the OEMs are looking to, I mean, BMW going direct to, to consumer um, and the dealership are really delivery agents. And also you have these franchises consolidated. It reminds me of, again, in agriculture, how the big boys get bigger. I mean, those days are gone when you can have your one dealership or two dealerships in town and mm -hmm. doing okay. Yeah, benefits of scale. And there are so many new franchises coming into the market. Driven by Chinese brands? Yeah, Chinese brands. What are they doing differently? I mean, other than it's a good product, fantastic price, don't have that brand equity, obviously, which is the challenge. I see now with was it Cherry with its million kilometer warranty and all these things. What did they do differently? Or are they just going the traditional route for now? They're going the traditional route at this stage. It's the Germans going more the agency model but to maintain the brand element. So what is the Chinese doing? Their pricing is right. And in our market, really, the price point is critical. And it's really hard to differentiate between the various vehicles to the extent that some are even badge swaps. I mean, we all know the Toyota and the Suzuki are, you know, are just a badge swap. So, you know, <laughs> how do you start to differentiate yourself in a market? And yeah, I mean, the Chinese brands are coming in thick and fast. And interestingly enough, Cherry, as an example, was here, I think, 15 years ago, and they left the market. Yes, that's right. I recently read that. I was quite surprised. You know, they left a little bit of a, a challenge in their wake. You know, I'm no expert in the vehicle side of the space, but they've come back almost stronger and bullshier, been out of the market for 10 years of knowing the market better. So it's almost like they go into a market they make the mistakes, they learn, they withdraw, and then they come back and, you know, try really hard to rectify. Coming back to the Germans, I understand completely controlling or managing the customer experience, the brand, all the rest. It makes mm. sense. How much money are they saving to cut out that middleman? I mean, at the end of the day, is that also a factor? Is that a harsh reality of we want to cut our costs? Maybe that's the longer term objective, but I don't think that they're necessarily saving costs in the short term. You know, ultimately, fundamentally, retailing is going to go online. So they, they're wanting to move into the online space. BMW already, you know, doing that. And, you know, I think even consumers struggle to differentiate between the dealership and the OEM. You know, unless you're in the motor industry, it's quite a difficult differentiator between I've bought a Toyota from a Toyota dealership, but, you know, there's potentially a fault with my Toyota. Why is Toyota not being held to account? So it's this complexity and in, in also the model and how it's kind of being made up. Honestly, I think from an OEM perspective, it's probably more costly in the short term because they've got to hold the stock. So the dealership no longer holds the stock. They've got to pay a margin, you know, the return policies and the swapping. So they're figuring it out. And I mean, BMW have done it locally. Mercedes-Benz have done it in Australia. And there's been a, quite an uproar from Mercedes-Benz um, in Australia. The dealerships are fighting that fight. BMW have done it relatively seamlessly in South Africa. And Jaguar Land Rover have just started the agency model locally. Why South Africa? We are the test ground. You know, let's test it in South Africa, see if it works adapt, iterate, and let's take it to, you know, the bigger markets. Fascinating. BMW and Jaguar Land Rover locally, the South African market's the first market for both of those franchises that the agency model's being rolled out. But I take it also, uh, you've got luxury brands here. So if you're going to try it, this is where you're going to try it. This is not going to work 
at, say, the cheaper brands? We chat to OEMs all the time, and at this stage, they're not considering it in the cheaper brands, but I think that's going to be the model long term. So the fact that it's the oldest franchise model, so it's just a matter of it's ready for disruption. Is that it? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Online manages the scalability a lot easier. Got it. Got it. You can go nuts. <laughs> Look. So we're all watching this movie with great anticipation. The electronic vehicles are going to need less maintenance, less servicing. You know, the time between services are going to be a lot longer. And our technology is really going to bridge that gap in terms of scalability, I believe. In the UK, I mean, you've got so many options of financing a vehicle. South Africa is very, very primitive when it comes to that. Is that do you see opportunities yeah. there in how vehicles are financed? Massive opportunity. Massive opportunity. We've got big banks that control a lot of the financing process. Mm. You know, there are so many varieties. And the way that we're going, you know, with most of the things in our life, you know, renting Netflix, you know, no longer are we buying all these things. It's a subscription model. And I definitely see a lot of opportunity. Obviously, in the South African market, the risk is payment and, and recoupment of the asset. But there are a couple of businesses opening in in that space. That is evolving. Yeah, it's evolving. You know, the consumer is going to demand it. And ultimately, the consumer gets what the consumer wants. That door's already been opened. I mm. think once, as I said, they start tasting the alternative to a 60-month loan, yeah. then uh, it starts shifting. Yeah, BMW are doing a, a really nice payment on some of their models where you get a guaranteed buyback and you just effectively rent it over, over a three-year period. Got it. Before I get back to Pinewood, two questions on the product itself and what you're seeing in the data. What's your take on Africa? Again, I'm thinking the Chinese. The last few months, I've been sitting in meetings where we talk about Africa strategy, Africa strategy, and South Africa doesn't have an Africa strategy, no. ironically. But I mean, the opportunities are huge. What do you guys see as far as Africa's massive market is concerned? Yeah, it's something that we haven't really explored a lot. A lot of the OEMs have requested that we go into the African markets. But because of the infrastructure, we've been a little bit hesitant, as well as the complexity around, you know, in Africa, they wheel and deal and correct process and, you know, correct SOPs. That's an afterthought, right? <laughs> Doesn't exist, which which ends up with a lot of headaches. I mean, I say that we've got big customers in Zim, Swaziland and Namibia, but I mean, that's as far reaching as we've got. It's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of Chinese brands going in there and most of Africa in the motor industry is being serviced out of South Africa. So, you know, each of the OEMs have got a sub-Saharan desk that's managing into the regions. But yeah, Africa is a different kettle of fish. You know, the vehicles need to be a lot hardier. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Chinese brands hold up. Yeah, and I mean, EV, what is that going to look like in Africa? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And we haven't got a strategy for Africa, to be fair. But we have been pushed into a couple of markets and we've kind of walked away from most of those deals. It's complex. The way they do business is yeah. really different to the way we do business in South Africa. Well, you're just looking for trouble if you just go in uh, unprepared. Yeah. Yet, I think there's so much opportunity. I, yes. mean, I believe there's a lot of opportunity. It's just in where you really want to focus. I suspect what Africa does well, it prompted me when you said you mentioned EV, they're going to leapfrog somewhere. Because <laughs> yeah. we don't know what we don't know. Yeah, like we did with mobiles. I mean, everyone's got two or three mobile phones. 
true, true. So coming back to Pinewood, what are you seeing in the data? I mean, coming back to this customer relationship management, what are the challenges? I'll give you an example. I mean, as a customer, it's a big group. I bought my first two vehicles for originally in Rustenburg and then service here in Midrand. And then next thing I get sales calls. Listen, man, I actually have that mm -hmm. already. It's that confusion of they don't even know and I have two of the same brands and they didn't even know I have those two brands. And I'm not getting my happy birthday for what it's worth, you know, email at the very least. Or, hey, your motor plan is running out, uh, Mr. Basson. How about it? Come and pop in. So for what I'm seeing, they're not doing the basics right. This is going back to just good old bad customer experience. Hence why we've recently launched um, a new brand. We started a business called Ampersand five years ago. And we consolidated that business into the Pinewood business to create kind of a consolidated offering for our dealerships and being able to tap into non-Pinewood DMS only businesses. So, and that business was born out of exactly the problem you speak about. Okay. Okay. <laughs> because what Pinewood DMS does exceptionally well is that it's got one database for the dealership group. So, you know, if you've got 20, 25 dealership locations, all consolidated in a single database. Yeah, so it's a central database. You know, it's one customer record, multiple vehicles on that customer record. So, you know, Jacques Besson has two, um, let's just call them Pinewood cars. <laughs> and the Pinewood cars were bought from Rustenburg, but they need to be serviced in Midrand because that's where he lives. You know, that kind of concept, the dealerships battle with. So we run a call center, really, for our dealerships. Um, we actually run their databases. We manage their databases. We call their customers. Brilliant. We market to their customers. We send service reminders to their customers. We try and get their customers back into the service department. We send, you know, reminders for, you know, warranties expiring, service plans expiring, those kind of elements have conversations around those. But it really fundamentally is a consequence of the quality of the data that's inputted into the business. And dealerships, unfortunately, don't value that data. They want to make the sale. Yeah. It doesn't matter if, if it's the wrong address or you just want to get this car sold. So it's a junk in, junk out problem. Yep, totally. Absolutely. And I mean, we spend huge amounts of time, resource and customers' money actually cleaning up databases. There are a couple of customers that really get it. And those are largely the customers that we're working with in the dealer services department. But one of the one of the big challenges is that they also are continually fishing for new leads. I mean, some dealerships are getting 200 leads a day. So, you know, it's the sales funnel. So they're managing this huge lead base, which is kind of compromising their current customer base. And they're not mining the customers that have already purchased from them. It's a massive leaking bucket. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine that's one of the big finances, and he was saying, number one, what irritates him from customers in the dealerships is that the days are gone that the customer just walks in the showroom. So just sitting and waiting, he says, you need to go. And I think that's, again, where the, the whole e-com is going to the customer. But funny enough, no one talks about retention rates, right? And everybody is sales orientated. And again, that's across the board. I find it in even, you know, in our business, sometimes you just have to take a closer look to what you have and make sure that you retain what you have or 
decrease the size of the crack in the bucket. The leakage. Mm. That in itself is a hell of an opportunity then being so sales, sales, sales orientated, but you can't even call a lead back to follow up on our inquiry. Yeah, that business has been born about, you know, around helping actually customers, dealerships do that. And I think that in the short term, a lot of that process is going to be taken over by AI. Mm. And which from a consumer perspective is really great because, you know, then all of this data is, you know, the analysis around it, it's predictable. I don't remember when my car needs a service. I need someone to phone me and remind me. Fortunately, <laughs> I'm a customer of one of our customers, so they do remind me. <laughs> <laughs> customer attention, you know, the OEMs speak about it a lot and they focus on it a lot in terms of dealership kickbacks and, you know, dealership reward programs. But I think it's a real struggle point when it comes to the how. And, you know, when you look at database sizes and, you know, the extent to which databases, you know, a lot of focus needs to be placed on keeping that clean. And when you've got the scale that a lot of our leadership groups have, it's a full-time job managing that database. It's a fourth business. It's not three businesses in one. Yeah. It's four businesses four. in one. I know. Yeah. Yep. What's the name of the, the new business called? It's called Motify. Motify. I love that. It's a great name. People-driven auto tech. We, we've got this product, the Pinewood DMS, which has got, you know, APIs, a lot of focus on moving into the online space and the retail space. Um, but really what we want to do is we want to connect the dots, connect the dots between all the different areas that a dealership is managing. And the reality is that there are so many aspects to it. You know, they're getting leads from multiple lead sources. They've got OEMs that they need to provide information from. And we're just wanting to help the dealerships make their lives easier so that they can focus on servicing the customers and closing the deals and servicing the cars correctly making sure the parts on hand when the vehicle comes into the, the workshop department. That's another story, right? <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> exactly. And giving the customer fantastic service because the truth of the matter is that the market has been consolidated. Dealerships are going to become fewer. And in fewer. summary, Julie, it's so nice to hear. And I mean it sincerely that these problems that I'm experiencing as a customer, and I know I'm not the only one that you've addressed that effectively now. You've got the solution and I hope you don't have high barriers <laughs> to, to getting that product out. <laughs> Not as high. <laughs> and it's all about the data, big data. It is big data. Absolutely. And want to help dealers service customers. Transforming service delivery in the automotive industry is our, is our mission. And I will continue to do everything that I can to make sure that we do that and that the consumers experience some level of uptick in that space. Well, it's uh, needed, it's required, and it's a, and it's a good old win-win. I really enjoyed our chat. It's fascinating to get this glimpse into the motor world at different levels, over and above buying, test driving, and selling a car. Appreciate your time, and uh, wishing the very best with Motorfire. Hope it goes very well. Thanks, Jacques. It's been fantastic. the show please subscribe and leave a review and follow us on social media at biz b-i-z crush